we tend to think of that people eat what farms produce, but I've started to believe that that is exactly wrong. Farms produce what people eat. Farms produce what people will buy. If what people buy comes in packages or has run at any point in its cycle through the maw of those four big food companies, there is no legitimate place for farms like ours. There is no way that our farm could profitably sell what we grow into the industrial food system. So, if you don't want to buy what farms like ours produce and make it the mainstay of your diet and not just the garnish, we simply won't exist. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from my favorite farmer and author, Kristen Kimball, who was addressing the crowd at our recent Saving Real Organic conference at Churchtown Dairy outside Hudson, New York. Kristen's message here is essential. Organic farmers can only do so much to protect their right to have the products that they produce on the shelves. We must look to partner with eaters in our activism and our educational campaigns. As you listen to Kristen, please consider making a donation to the Real Organic Project on this Giving Tuesday. You can visit our new website, realorganicproject.org slash donate. Our next speaker is Kristen Kimball. I don't understand why people don't go and hear speakers like Glenn and Kristen uh, speak in these huge stadiums, like everybody's going to see Taylor Swift or whatever. They, these are my idols, and they are incredible. And you could spend weeks with them and never stop learning from them. Uh, as a farmer and all the farmers I talk to that have read Kristen's books, uh, we read them and often are in tears because we relate so much to what she's saying. Um, we all have our favorite stories. My favorite story, uh, well, there's so many, it's hard to pick, but one of the ones that sticks with me is when it's, it's so hard when you're starting out. So in The Dirty Life, the first book about starting out, uh, she and her husband, Mark, have, have worked all day, and all they can do at the end of the day is fall over in their dirty clothes and just touch hands. Because they know in a couple hours they're starting over and they're doing it all again. And uh, we're lucky if we get any of the food in our mouths that we're working so hard to produce. So I'll, I'll, let, I'll let Kristen inspire you more, but um, her books are a gem if you haven't read them yet. Kristen. Thank you, Lindley. That was the kindest intro I've ever gotten in my whole life, and I deeply appreciate it. Um, let's see here. So I'm going to do this very TED Talky thing and begin with this question. Uh, how many of you who are here today are making your living by farming, by selling food to people who eat it? Can you stand up? Can you just stand up for a sec? Awesome. <laughs> um, I just want you to know that uh, if your season was anything like our season, 
I don't have to ask you how you are. Um, it was a tough one to grow food in the Northeast. Uh, the rain just didn't stop where we are. Um, so I see you. I know what you've been through this year, and I appreciate you. Um, and please keep doing what you're doing. And I have really good news for you for the next 18 minutes on the question of how to save real organic farming. You're officially off the hook. This is not your problem to solve. Partly, that's because it's a numbers thing. Somewhere between 1% and 2% of the American population works in agriculture. And like Lindley said at the beginning, about 1% of American farmland is in organics. And in real organics, that's a real like, tiny subset of that. So you are a subset of a subset of 1% of 1%. There's probably not enough of us to move the needle on anything. And at the same time, come on, guys, you're already doing enough. Um, I ran into an ex-dairy farmer and real organic certified member at my kids' track meet in Vermont last week. And she gleefully told me, even though she's younger than I am, um, that she identifies as retired because after 18 years of milking cows, she figures that she has put in the same amount of hours as anybody uh, who has done a full career. Um, so you all are off the hook. But you know what I'm going to ask next. How many of you who are here today eat? And how many of you purchase at least some portion of the food that you eat? Raise your hand. Yep. So just about 100%. Um, and the problem of saving real organic is totally and entirely up to you. Doing it is going to require some effortful things from you. There's going to be some discomfort. There's going to be some inconvenience. And there's going to be some learning involved. But the good news is, I believe that if you do those things and make the effort, you'll not only be helping to save real organic independent farms and rural communities and the planet, but you'll transform your own life and your own health and discover a more satisfying way to eat, to engage with your community, and to live. So my husband, Mark, and I Uh, sorry, guys. Can't figure out how to forward this. Good. Um, have been running Essex Farm for exactly 20 years as of this coming November 1st. Essex Farm is a full diet, year-round, free-choice CSA. So we currently provide a full diet for about 150 people. And we produce beef, pork, I think, did I lose my, uh, my slide there? Okay, I can't tell what slide I'm on, so. <laughs> okay, beef, pork, chicken, lamb, eggs, vegetables, grains, herbs, and fats. And we milk um, anywhere between 15 and 25 Jersey cows uh, for fresh grass-fed raw milk and dairy products. And we produce some value-added 
extras like maple syrup, fermented vegetables, soap, and apple cider. For all of this, our adult members pay us $110 per week, per person, and they get anything that they want to eat in any combination. They take what they want from what we have to offer. For members that can't pay full price as of this year, we tap into a donor-advised fund that was founded by one of our members uh, to bridge the gap between the full cost of our share and what families of more modest means can afford. Our goal has always been to subvert the mainstream food system and make the grocery store obsolete for our members. And when our members are in, they're in. At $110 per week, most of the people who are living in our part of the world are spending their whole food budget on us, and it's a leap for them. It forces them to have to reframe the way that they think of food and shift from asking themselves, what do I want in the infinite range of the global food system for dinner tonight, to asking themselves, what's available right now? What is in its seasonal moment of perfection right now? Our members' refrigerators look very what my kids would call sus. They have this very suspicious lack of labels, and their pantries are devoid of any of these packages with a colorful advertising on them. And there's not much in their kitchens that has passed through the maw of those four giant agribusinesses that hold controlling stakes in the majority of our food system. That guy. Now I know how to work it. <laughs> so after doing this for two decades, we know that eating like this locally, seasonally, from food procured from your local producer is possible. We know it's delicious. And our members tell us sometimes that it can be life-changing. As an agricultural business model, by selling this whole diet that's produced on one farm, we kind of stumbled on a way to scale a wildly diverse farm system into a business that can modestly support an independent farm family and its employees. And that's a really big thing. Trust me, we didn't know that that's what we were doing when we started out. But as we've seen throughout the last couple of speakers, nature loves diversity, but economies love monoculture. And in the last couple of generations, eating like we and our members eat, almost exclusively whole food, local and in season, bought from a local producer, that sort of diet has gone from so normal that it is completely boring to extremely weird and even radical. And there's tons of reasons for that shift. One of the biggest ones is that those four giant agribusiness companies and other ones like it, they want you to see real whole food as a garnish, 
And they're processed, profit-generating, packaged products as the main course. The pressure that those companies in our system exert to scale up and consolidate at all levels of the system, in production, in processing, in transportation, and distribution, that pressure in the last 20 years has become overwhelming. They spend more on advertising and marketing food in this country than any other industry except for the automotive industry. And as a result, we're starting to lose the plot culturally on what food actually is. A few years ago, we had a family visiting who had a three- or a four-year-old little girl with them, and it was June. So on our farm, that means it's strawberry season. Everybody gets really excited about it. And I wanted to entertain this little kid by taking her out to the strawberries and letting her pick strawberries. Um, and I was very wrong. That was not entertaining for her at all. <laughs> she... She wasn't from a farm family, so she didn't want to walk in the rows. She didn't want to pick the berries. And I understood that. She wasn't used to it. But what I found really alarming was that she didn't want to eat the strawberry. She didn't want to eat any of the food that we produced on our farm. Because at that age of development, you know, kids will only eat what's familiar to them. And anything that's whole food to her was not familiar to her. So she became really hungry and really cranky, and eventually her parents drove her 40 miles north to the nearest McDonald's and bought her a Happy Meal. <sighs> Completely lost my slides here, guys. I'm so sorry. Hold on. Here's a few more pictures of our farm. This is my husband, Mark. Here's my stock photo at agribusiness. And look, it's really easy to vilify different players in this system. But large-scale monoculture and processed food, I think, are just the inevitable endpoints of food production in a purely for-profit capitalist food system. It's nobody's fault. It's no one player's fault. In the same way that gravity is nobody's fault. But as thinking humans with the ability to see the long-range outcome, we collectively have the power to divert that system, little by little, with every choice that we make. And that's where every one of us in this room comes in. We tend to think of that people eat what farms produce, but I've started to believe that that is exactly wrong. Farms produce what people eat. Farms produce what people will buy. If what people buy comes in packages or has run at any point in its cycle through the maw of those four big food companies, there is no legitimate place for farms like ours. There is no way that our farm could profitably sell what we grow into the industrial food system. So, if you don't want to buy what farms like ours produce and make it the mainstay of your diet and not just the garnish, we simply won't exist. What will flow in to fill our place? 
It's not too much of a stretch to say that almost all the good ground in America is in corn and beans, right? The ruthlessly efficient model of industrial agriculture is spray, plant, spray, harvest, repeat at increasingly enormous scale. There are no people on those vast acres. There are no communities, just a few very large and expensive machines. Meanwhile, the biggest chunk of the American food dollar goes for processed foods and sweets. So it's pretty simple. If what we choose to eat is narrow, our agricultural landscape will be narrow. When I think of the sameness of those fields that stretch for miles, the narrow sameness of our food choices, I get the same feeling that I get when I see the soulless sameness of American strip malls or replicated tracts of housing or the aisle of a big box store that's the same in Arkansas as it is in Alaska. And I know that we have to muster an effort to change it. It's been, um, it's been a hard few months for us at Essex Farm. Uh, 2022 was devastating. Uh, and for me personally, it's not just farming, it's just it's everything right now. My sister, my sister died at the end of June, and she was the person I was closest to in the world. And I thought that the last part of her cancer and her death would be the hardest part, but I didn't know enough about grief. Um, because there's this stretch of empty loneliness that follows um, that's much, much harder than the end. And over the summer, I really sunk uh, into that empty loneliness. And at the end of August, because of that, we did something that farmers never do, and we went on a summer vacation. Mark and I have never, thank you, Mark and I have never both left the farm together during the growing season, and we did it, and we went for a week of canoe camping in the lakes and the woods of Ontario. And that time away that was disconnected from everything helped shift that grief a little bit. And it also made me think about food in a new way. We were in the Canadian wilderness to, in part, to retrieve our two daughters, who are teenagers now. And they had each gone on this backcountry canoe adventure um, with this awesome camp called Northwaters in Landskib. Um, it runs out of Tomogamy, and their home base is right near us in Essex. And we boated out to their island at the end of the camp, and we cheered with all the other parents as the groups paddled in from their 10 or 20-day backcountry trips, and then we listened to their stories about navigating unpopulated lakes and rivers, portaging their canoes over tricky stretches of land, and setting up camp while they're tired or hungry or cold or wet or otherwise uncomfortable. We also heard about transcendent encounters with the natural world, new friendships, personal discoveries, rites of passage, and the joy of belonging that comes from working hard with a team of peers. Unspoken, but evident, there was this collective relief that these young people had felt from being away from screens and Wi-Fi and having real-world, meaningful, unmediated experiences. And one good thing about grief is that it opens you up to everything. 
So watching those kids got me thinking weirdly about food and specifically about the inverse correlation between convenience and satisfaction. Our current culture has made us believe that comfort is sort of the same as safety and that convenience is something of great value and that we should strive for the maximum amounts of both at all times. And while we've achieved the highest levels of comfort and convenience in the history of the world, we don't seem to be much happier. Watching those kids return from their trips with these happy, confident eyes and strong, healthy bodies, looking like those girls on horseback from the last speaker, made me wonder, is real happiness even possible with too much comfort and convenience? It's uncomfortable to sleep in a wet sleeping bag and inconvenient to haul your necessities over rocks. But these are things that most humans are capable of safely doing, and it's satisfying to have done them in order to see something or do something beautiful and rare and exciting or exquisite or to learn something important about yourself. Likewise, we've come to believe that preparing whole food or eating locally and in season is insurmountably inconvenient. And it's true that it takes more time and forethought but look what we end up with instead. The culinary anesthesia of processed food, which is fast and easy and sometimes even instant. It tastes pretty good if you don't pay too much attention to it. Food scientists and ad executives get a really big fat paycheck to make you think it tastes good. But the truth is it's bad for us. It's bad for our communities. It's bad for our planet. And if you pause to really taste it, you realize that it offers you nothing except a quick dopamine hit from the carefully calibrated levels of salt and fat and sugar and flavor. These are simulations for real foods in the same way that screens are simulations for real experience. And while they can be gratifying and distracting and addictive, they're never really satisfying. On our way home, we drove past this large clearing where the shady old Canadian forest had been torn up and the trees had been cut and hauled away. And there were these ugly piles of stumps among the ruts and piles of rock at the edge waiting to be cleared. And we knew that the spring would be ready for the plow and that the forest was being destroyed to make way for more corn and more soy, which is the fuel for most processed food and all factory meat. We can imagine a different and healthier landscape, but it would require a different, healthier consumer, one with a tolerance for some inconvenience, with an appetite for more complex flavors, and a willingness, of all things, to chew. I know that I'm preaching to the choir here. And I hope you'll allow me to manhandle this analogy for one more minute. Independent consumers who base their diet on whole food in season, bought from a local producer, are the key to the survival of independent farms. 
Without you, there's no reason we need to have an alternative to the mainstream food system. You're the culinary canoeists, willing to portage over steep terrain <laughs> in order to access the deliciously quiet lake. You put effort and resources into sourcing food that's not convenient. You trade infinite choice for the natural limits of regional climate and season. You have to acquire some knife skills. You have to develop your ability to chew. You have to tolerate the limit of season and climate and take the time to find food that isn't being advertised to you. And then you have to take it home and put significant work into turning it into meals. If you don't do that yet, please do. If you do do it, please teach someone else to do it. Why should you go to that effort? Because real things are more satisfying than simulations. Because effort in the right direction is almost always rewarded. Because your body and your spirit orient you to what's good as surely as the needle points north, as long as you can be quiet enough to sense it. Your job when you leave here today is to tell more people about this, to give them knife skills and the will to cook and taste and chew. Because without more of you, there won't be farms like us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Real Organic Podcast. Our movement is growing because you're subscribing and sharing these podcasts with your friends. Keep it up and leave us a rating and a review as well. You can find a video version of this interview on our newly designed website, realorganicproject.org, or by visiting our YouTube channel. Join us next time when we'll be bringing you another talk from Churchtown Dairy, this time from attorney, law professor, and author of the amazing book, Break Em Up, Zephyr Teachout. <laughs>